This week, it was a pleasure to have one of the best and most thoughtful operators in the country join us, Kat Cole, COO and President of North America for Focus Brands. Focus Brands, while unknown to many consumers as a parent company, owns companies that are mainstay language in most American households. Cinnabon, Auntie Anne's, Moe's, Jamba Juice, and more. In this conversation, we explored two big themes, operating and brand building. We spent the first half unpacking operating principles, how to change mindsets, how to evaluate compelling opportunities, solving for being right versus being curious, curiosity and humility as the foundation for courage and confidence, and possibility versus positivity filters, and unpack each through examples. In the second half, we dove into all things brand, namely how to build, differentiate, and sustain brand. We rounded out the conversation with Kat's sources of learning and ground truth motto she lives by. This was one of the most knowledge-packed conversations we've had, and it was fun to have Kat on the show. Kat, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Kat, really excited to have you on today. You know, we've had some of the best operators in the world on the show, uh, founders and CEOs of public companies like Boston Beer, Toys R Us, Hudson's Bay. Uh, amongst that legion of great thinkers, you know, I'm, I'm really pumped to have you on the show. Um, I've learned a ton from you from afar. And glad we'll have the opportunity to dive into some of those lessons and share some new ones with our listeners. I want to talk about lessons learned in leadership and as an operator today. But you know, before we dive in, tell us a little bit more about your background from earlier on in life. I'll give the you know the short version, but I uh, grew up in uh, a single parent household. When I was nine years old, uh, my mom left my father. I'm the oldest of three girls, so I have two younger sisters. And my father was an alcoholic at the time and a terrible husband and father. Um, He's good today, um, but back then it was really tough. And so my mom left and we struggled for several years. She had an entry level job, but she figured out how to support us uh, with no child support or no other resources. She fed us on a food budget of $10 a week for three years. She slowly moved up in her own company so that she could Uh, support us financially a little better. And I saw great examples of grit and resilience and grace during that time. I started working at a young age, as you can imagine, being in that financial position and was a a mall employee selling clothes at 15 and a hostess at Hooters at 17 and uh, then a waitress at Hooters at 18. And that uh, time carried me through graduating from high school. I was the first person in my family to get into college. And so I started college while waitressing. And, uh, you know, a, a lot changed from that point on. Um, that was a little contradictory to what I thought my path was going to be. But those were the early days. Yeah. And so let's let's talk about that, right? You're 17. You get a job at Hooters as a waitress. I'm sure entering into that role, you don't have the forward vision that you're going to be opening franchises internationally, so on and so forth. Um, it's a fascinating story. I'm sure many of our listeners have, have not heard it. I'd love for you to just, you know, give a high level. We'll dive in a ton, but talk a little bit more about your experience at, at Hooters. So Hooters was, you know, it's a restaurant concept. Uh, and at the time happened to be growing internationally when I was a waitress. And I was not only a waitress, but I, when the cooks quit one day, I went back and cooked. And occasionally the bartender had to go home early. So I learned how to be a bartender. And fast forward a few months into working there. And I had worked almost every job in the building, which made me a valuable employee. I could not only do multiple jobs, but I quickly became what's known in retail as, or a lot of businesses as a certified trainer. So I would train new hires that would come into the restaurant. And because I could work many jobs 
and I could train other people, I was a logical candidate to be a member of training teams that would travel around to open new restaurants. And, uh, and that, again, is not unusual. It's very normal in any business. You take people who know how to do their job well, teach them to train other humans, put that knowledge together, and have them be a part of the people who onboard and train and mentor your new hires. What was unusual is that it was Hooters, so that always you know, makes headlines. Uh, but what was also unusual is that the company was growing very quickly internationally. And when I was 19 years old, the management came to me and said, we're building a team of people to go launch the first ever Hooters in Australia. And we'd like you to be a member of that team. I had never been on a plane. I'd only been on the state of Florida a couple of times in my life for cheerleading competitions. I did not have a passport. I was a very small town, you know, born there, lived there, grew up there, worked there kind of person. This was sort of pre social media, the internet. I graduated from high school in 1996. So this was 96, 97. So you can think about all the things that enable knowledge that exist today that did not then. And I said yes to the opportunity. I bought my first ever plane ticket, uh, flew to Miami within 24 hours, stood in line with my paperwork and documents to get a passport expedited. And then I left a few weeks later to go to Sydney to be a part of that training team and opened and launched the first ever Hooters franchise in Australia. Had an amazing time, as people can imagine, a 19-year-old traveling to Australia, opening a franchise. Uh, but I thought, well, this will never happen again. You know, I got lucky. I need to make up my classes because opening restaurants, when you travel that far, you have to be there for three to four weeks, sometimes longer. And so I'd missed a lot of school. So I came back, made up the classes, and just thought I would go back to my path of being in school. And very quickly, as the company was launching more franchises in other countries, on other continents, I was asked to not only be a member of those teams, but very quickly to start leading those teams and leading the training and the opening process of a new franchise in Central America and South America, you know, all around the world. And before I knew it, I was failing college because I was traveling so much. So I dropped out of school uh, just before the end of my second year. So I didn't even get my associate's degree. And uh, I had no promises. I had no contracts. These weren't salaried positions. I was paid a daily rate. Uh, because I wasn't waiting tables. I was, you know, leading the opening of the franchise before it was open. And then when I came back home, I would wait tables. I would work hourly shifts uh, in my normal job in my home restaurant in Jacksonville. And it just so happens that Hooters was growing uh, their corporate office because of all of this growth around the world and asked me to interview at the age of 20 to take a corporate job running in the employee training program for the entire company. I interviewed I got the job, I moved to Atlanta, and that began my corporate career in the restaurant business. Not expected, uh, definitely to your point, not predictable, but the path that presented itself in front of me and I was good at it. And as the company grew, I grew. That's the headline. Every two years I took on a different role, taking on broader functionality, more responsibility. And by the time I was 26, I was one of the vice presidents of the company while we were doing around 800 million in revenue. I want to I want to go back to the kind of that linchpin decision, right? Because you you had a fork in the road, which you could have said, you know what, I'm the first in my family to go to college. You know, this might be interesting, but there's a whole bunch of risk. It's not guaranteed, like you were saying. I'm going to continue down kind of the path that I'm going down, um, or you make this jump, right? And you obviously make this jump. Talk. We, we talk a lot of, in business. I think it's it's easy to retroactively always look and say, you know, there was a strategy and kind of the story worked out. Um, it's never like that. You know that as an operator. I know that as an operator. 
Um, how, how, talk about that decision, right? How did you make that decision, especially with that kind of that gravity of, of impact, right, to your college journey, so on and so forth at that stage in life? It was not a difficult decision and it did not take long. I, I did pause for a moment because yeah. I knew my mom would be disappointed as the first person in our family to get into college and so much promise and intellect being put to work and the dream of one day being an engineer and an attorney and had all of this very fancy sort of vision. So I, I knew that would disappoint her. But she was also very impressed mm. at me traveling around the world, opening these restaurants at such a young age. That also was, that also made her proud. So it wasn't as if I'm saying, I'm going to quit college and just go sit on a beach somewhere. <laughs> you know, it was a compelling alternative of something that I was energized about and I was very good at it. And for that reason, it was not a difficult decision. It was not strategic. It was not planful. It was just following what felt right. And it, it was a compelling alternative for people who say, well, do you then recommend that people don't go to college or school? No, of course. It's one of the greatest privileges in the world, higher education. But I had a compelling alternative. If you don't have a compelling alternative, get your education, get smart, develop skills. If you have a compelling alternative, follow it with gusto. Because in my mind, I thought, well, if this isn't the right path, I'll know it quickly. And then hopefully I can go back to college. There weren't the online options that there are today. So it was a bit more of a risk in terms of a departure from the education path, but it was not a difficult decision. So you're rising quickly through the company, right? As you mentioned, you're working with folks that are much older, much more experienced, at least in this space uh, than you are. Um, you, you've had some interesting thoughts that I've, I've heard and read before, kind of just the mental maturity right, that's required to operate in that type of environment. Um, I want you to talk a little bit more about that and, you know, what you pulled away from, from that type of experience of growing, um, you know, quickly in an organization. The mental maturity required to work in any diverse environment, but certainly when there's great disparity, you know, when you're, when I'm the only, I was the only one that was that young. I was the only female for some period of time, even though many people in management were, were women. In fact, I had only worked for women until I actually worked for the CEO. All my bosses, most of them had been women and all of the corporate ones were women. And so um, it is, a, a. I think you described it properly, that it is a mental maturity that I learned to have that was certainly well beyond my years. But it just became obvious to me that first, when there are people in their 50s and 60s in executive roles, the reality was in my early days, they had been in business longer than I had been alive. You know, no hyperbole, right? I'm, I'm a 26-year-old first-time executive, and these people have been in business for 30 years. Yep. And so that it was just very apparent to me that that isn't likely a scenario where I'm going to change much of their mindset. You know, it's kind of baked. And so I put a lot of responsibility on myself uh, to listen, to learn. I think there was something very beautiful about being so young because I didn't hesitate to ask questions. I think as people get older, they feel a burden of being right and feel they hesitate to be curious mm. because they feel that there's an expectation that they have the answers. Well, when you're that young, of course I'm asking questions. Of course, you know, there was a, a, a permission to be naive that was a gift. And I saw that rewarded, the, the curiosity and the humility to ask questions and ask for help. And so as I grew up, 
I did not lose that. I kept that humility and curiosity and, and didn't get the sickness of people who are more mature and believe that I had to have all the answers. I had learned very quickly that being right in business is really about having the right questions, not about supposing you have all the answers because things change so much. And so that, that thought pattern is a very mature, self-aware yeah. um, set of beliefs and I came to it relatively early and saw the benefits. And so that humility and curiosity, ironically, built courage and confidence. Hmm. It's not that I had confidence that I would be right. It's not that I had confidence that I would always know how to do that yet again new thing I was now being asked to do. It's that I had confidence that I could figure it out. There's a difference. There's a difference in believing I'm good, I know what I'm doing, everybody follow my lead, that is one path. It is different to say, I am, I am confident that I and we will figure it out together. That is a confidence that is built on a foundation of yeah. humility and curiosity. And that's a much more sustainable confidence um, and courage and one that, allows, that allowed me to build teams as opposed to bull in a china shop. I'm young. They're doubting me. So I need to be the boss in air quotes. Yep. Um, you know, it's a different path. And some people, especially young leaders fall into that trap. I found one of the things I, I really liked that I wanted to double click into the humility and curiosity relationships. I'm really glad you explained it out that way. One, one of the things I found as, as a younger leader, so I, I lead a company that has about a hundred full-time employees. W one of the thing that, one of the things that's really helped me is adopting, you know, what I call, and, and we call it in our company, the my fault framework. And I, I think you agree with me on this, but it, the idea is basically, if something goes wrong, anything goes wrong, right? At the first instance, assume it's your fault, right? So if you're criticized, right? Assume it's correct, try to unpack it. Um, that sounds nice in theory, and it takes a lot of work, right? A lot of emotional work also to get to that, uh, get to that stage, right? To fight off those impulses of defensiveness or, um, really understand and look at, you know, what might be elements of yourself that you need to work on. Um, I want you to talk about that concept a little bit more, if you agree with that framing. I think that's the first piece. And then I think the second piece is, uh, if you do agree with that framing, how have you, as you've, you know, risen in your career and such as a leader, you know, what's the experiences or the, the mental mindset that's allowed you to adopt that type of framework? I think it only, I mean, yes, I agree. I'm known for sharing the advice I got from a mentor in South America early on who told me, uh, whenever you're criticized, assume first it's accurate. And then it will, the process of at least entertaining that there might be some validity helps prevent me putting my foot in my mouth. Um, if in fact there is some seed of truth or if there's not, it, it moves me to focusing on the why instead of de debating the what and allows me to progress through relationships and working through feedback in a more productive way. In terms of, does it take work? I think that depends on whether or not you truly believe hmm. that, that you're often likely not fully right. Okay. It, it takes work if there's something in you, which is not wrong or bad, you just have to be honest about it that actually do believes you're smarter and more right than others most of the time. And if that is your beginning position, then yes, it takes work, self-work to allow that to be your first thought because it is what it is, 
and to not allow that to then go from brain to mouth and, and sort of have a more intellectual approach to getting at the humility. And again, that's not a criticism of, of anyone's starting position. It's just, you got to know what's true about you. And, and for me, because of where I grew up, um, my background, the difficulties we experienced, I genuinely started in a far more humble place. So it didn't take the work, but the opposite was true for me. It took work to not completely step back in situations where I was needed to step up and make a decision and go forward. So the grass is not greener. You know, you just have to know where I have learned. I have to know where I'm starting from. And for me, my natural style is to over-index on humility and curiosity. So that means my risk is that when the situation calls for courage and confidence and decisiveness and, and leading with clarity, I, that, that in the early days, that took more work for me because I would just naturally defer to those more seasoned in the room out of respect. And I made some big mistakes in the early days because of that trait. The same is true for those who over-index on courage and confidence. They can be bulls in a china shop and they may get things done, but over time, no one wants to be on their team and they have to micromanage the team as a result. And so then the work for them is learning to genuinely be more humble and curious and more open to criticism. I'd, I'd love for you to give an example, either from, you know, from Hooters focus, you know, any time that you think is apt that really in your mind kind of illustrates that, that concept. Yeah, I'll just use my own. I mean, there are plenty from other people, but a story I've told very often is when I first took over as president of Cinnabon, there were a lot of uh, multi-channel initiatives, new products we were launching. And, you know, anytime you launch a new product in a new channel or in new markets, there are other elements that are different and new about that process, timing, value chain, et cetera. And some of the products we were launching were able to be commercialized far more quickly. And I won't get into the details of it so we can talk about other things, but essentially I had not put in place the checks and balances uh, that will allow us to be in front of certain changes to this product when it was happening so much more quickly, meaning we could change the product in days and our normal commercialization cycle with consumer packaged goods was 18 to 24 months. And so things changed very quickly with this product we were launching. And I went to the franchisees, told them we were launching X. What ended up launching was Y. It mm. looked like I had lied. And what had really happened was I had failed as a leader to put processes in place in my own company to ensure things didn't evolve without my approval and direct involvement. And, and so it became this enormous problem, a complete violation of trust with the franchisees. And, um, and while it wasn't me who created the different thing, I was the president. And there were times in the days leading up to the launch that I could remember seeing packaging being a little different or something else changing. And I remember the thought, who am I to question them, right? These people have been around forever. Why would they do anything to hurt the company? I'm sure that's not for this business. And I had the humility to ask the question, who am I to question these people I respect so much? But I failed in that moment to have the courage and the confidence required and to answer the question. And the answer to the question, who am I, is I am the freaking president. And if I don't ask questions, no one will. 
And in that very specific case, if I had poked around, um, led with more gravitas, challenged what I was seeing, even though I was new to the company, I likely could have caught what was changing, slowed it down, and ensured it either didn't change or communicated what those changes would be in advance, preserving the integrity of my relationship. And so I ended up having to tell the franchisees, we did not handle this properly. I should have gotten in front of it. it. I didn't lie to you. It just changed because we're in a new channel where that can change more quickly. And I did not put the processes in place to, to catch that. And so I'm, we're going to cancel the contract and pull back the product. I'm going to put the processes in place to help us accelerate these additional channels and we'll do it better next time. And, and we did. Uh, but it was a huge learning on, on my part to not... Uh, fail to pull forward the leadership, the decisiveness, and even the feather ruffling that might be needed um, that the position requires for, for, and for me did, to have. And, and how did you balance, so I understand that from the perspective of obviously establishing trust, you know, certainly with the folks that were below you in your organization, franchisees, et cetera. How did you manage that? Because uh, from my understanding of that story, the, you know, the economics were not immaterial, right? It was, it was yeah. there were significant stakes. on. Yeah. The we walked away from a lot of money. So how did you manage that upwards uh, with your executive team, with the board, you know, et cetera? First, this is where having a high integrity owner and leadership team is very valuable. Yeah. So um, it was clear to them as it was clear to me that although we had the right to do what we did, we had the legal right, even for it to change in the way that it did. And it was performing very well when it launched. Just because we have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And that was a shared belief. This would have been tougher if that were not a set of shared values. And it was a set of shared values. And so it wasn't popular. No one liked me coming saying we need to walk away from millions uh, in EBITDA for the company and delighting millions of fans in this new channel. But the reality was my positioning was the higher order understanding that if we don't clean this up, if I can't make it right, I am going to have a much harder time leading these stakeholders through future changes and future innovation that I need. And that is far more costly over time than just losing this single piece of business. And um, so that, that's the answer. That was the positioning, but I, it wasn't, I shouldn't get all the credit. You know, I, I get credit for making it right. I get credit for a bold leadership in a very emotional, difficult time, but that would not have been effective if not for shared values of the broader leadership team and the financial sponsors and the owners. Yeah. I want to I want to switch gears a little bit, Kat, um, and talk about one element of your philosophy of leadership that, that I really love, and it's this idea of every human is magic. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there, um, and I want to get into that. But let's first just start at an overarching, you know, orientation level. What what does that phrase mean to you, and why is that a portion of your philosophy? It means people are capable of more than they know. That's it. I've I've experienced it myself. I've seen that in people that I know. I've seen that come out in people that I've led and influenced. There's no shortage of examples um, around the world of that being true. And that is magic to me that there's, you know, more is possible than someone knows. You, I mean, again, you could Google um, impossible feats by human beings and you see the miracles of physical uh, resilience, 
the miracles of mental and emotional resilience and creativity from children, from adults, from seniors, um, that it's just true. It's just true. You know, people are capable of more than they know. And the degree to which that can be brought out in them is quite nuanced with, you know, how enabling is their environment? What access to resources do, do they have? What examples do they have that represent um, them and their background? And so how easy is it for them to see the potential that they have with representation? You know, that's a whole different conversation. Um, But that's what that means to me. It means that people are capable of more than they know. And as a result, people often mistake that view and say, I have a positivity filter and I always correct that. Mm. It is not a positivity filter. I, I am a pragmatic optimist or an optimistic pragmatist. Um, But I don't believe everything is positive. I believe many things are possible. It is a possibility filter um, that I have on the world as a result of seeing what is possible in humans that is likely born out of my experience with my mom. I I like that nuance and I'm I'm glad you called it out kind of that way because it can be seen as uh, blanket optimism, but what it sounds like to me is kind of cautious or cautious optimism, but blank, you know, blanket and bold um, pragmatism, right? In, In evaluating and such. Um, it's so interesting because on the venture side and in, in tech, it's such a common trope, uh, for investors, you know, when evaluating an idea, you know, ask not what can go wrong, but ask, you know, if this works, what can go right. And it seems like that's the same kind of philosophy, right. That's being espoused here. Um, and I'm sure the, the critique or the opposite perspective is, you know, there's, there's opportunities to get burned or there's kind of opportunities to pay that type of tax, but it, it feels like in operating, you know, if you're playing the long game, especially it feels like it's a much better uh, long-term strategy to be playing with that kind of probability lens, right? Versus not. Yeah, I, I learned it as a waitress. You know, the reality is there are always people who are going and in retail selling clothes. When I was fifteen, every once in a while, there's someone who's out to get you. There's someone who's coming in with the purpose of scamming. You know, I'm going to tell you that there was something in my food when there really wasn't, and I want the money back. Or I'm going to wear the clothes and I'm going to return it because it didn't fit. And I'm going to say I didn't wear it, but I really did. You know, that, that yeah. actually does exist. But it is a minority of the situations. And what is far more likely are people who actually have a mistake with their order and people who actually are disappointed with their purchase. And so instead of acting as if everyone is out to scam and then taking the risk of missing on an opportunity to delight a customer, it's, I just learned to have the opposite view that, you know what? Yes, occasionally there are people who are gonna take advantage. And sometimes when they learn they can take advantage, they come back over and over, and then it makes it very obvious and easy to spot a real offender. But in general, um, people are looking for value and to be valued, and so as a waitress, it was far more fruitful to assume uh, the best and assume what is positive. And so that mindset that was born out of being a waitress, I now use to develop talent, executives, recruit, retain, hire, fire, influence boards, advise founders, um, invest in startups. It, you know, it's a very simple concept, but because I was so face-to-face with the consequences of those belief systems, 
in a retail environment, it became a very deeply rooted set of belief systems that then I apply to, to the, the rest of the world and to humans beyond a, a retail transaction situation, but to what's possible and how I should understand that occasionally I'll be disappointed, but that, that is a tax I'm willing to pay. Give an example, Kat, of a, of a retail example where, you know, A, this, this, um, this kind of framework played out and one in which, you know, the outcome might have been obvious after the fact, but obviously it was, you know, anything but before the fact. I mean, there are several very similar to what I just shared, right? Somebody comes in and uh, I'll give a waitressing example I just shared on um, another podcast, but it's one that people really like which is there was a customer that would come in every Friday and order 50 wings with his buddies. And at the end of eating all the wings, he would say there were only 40 and complain. And, and now when you're just looking at a plate of bones, you know, how can I debate? And the first time you're like, okay, I'm so sorry. Um, let me take that off your bill because you got to go, you're done eating. And then next Friday it happens again. And it's like, Hmm, maybe it's a different waitress or a different manager. So we don't catch it. It takes a couple weeks of us seeing it and kind of talking and going, okay, this guy is doing this every Friday. There is no way we are miscounting with this particular person that consistently. And one manager ended up going over and like fighting and arguing and saying, you know, this is ridiculous. There's no way that's happening. If it was the case, why did you, you know, eat them all? You know, you can just take it in a very negative direction and get schooled up. And ultimately you're going to end up comping the guy's meal anyway. And so um, from training that I had gone through in the company, learning about customer service, I addressed it a different way, which is before the guy could finish the plate of 50 wings with his buddies, when it looked like there were about 10 or 15 wings left, I placed an order for a 10 piece on my own dime, had the kitchen put up a plate of 10 chicken wings and brought it over to him with a smile and said, I know we always, you know, we seem to not be able to count. And so just in case, here's 10 extra wings. And it, his, you know, his friends died laughing because they knew the guy was kind of an ass and, um, and he laughed and he was like, you know, that's good. I got a huge tip from the table that day. And to my knowledge, he never pulled that again. And so it's just, you know, it's about how you handle things. It doesn't mean it's always going to smooth out the situation, but my belief was this guy's coming in every day or every week. He can't be that upset. You know, he keeps coming back. And so, and it's good money you know, that a consistent customer every Friday is something not a lot of businesses want to lose a group at that. Uh, and so there's got to be a better way than having to deal with this. So I've got countless examples, but they're all versions of, of that handling it differently because I would see something was possible to turn it into a better interaction than just the typical, I'm going to fight you because um, I disagree with what your position is. Yeah, I, I love that. I want to I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, brand. You obviously have a lot of thoughts on brand. It can be a fully different conversation. You know, one of the biggest topics um, that's going on in, in the tech world today is really now how we're creating an economy for creators. And I think such a critical part of maximizing the value out of that economic framework is really the ability to build a brand. You've built brands at the largest levels, you know, and across countries. Um, and these are brands, you know, everybody knows and has come across as well. 
uh, as I was saying, this could be, a, you know, this is a mega question and could be its own conversation. But if you had to distill just key lessons across building a brand, right? How would you distill it or put together kind of a 101 framework to think about brand? A brand is more than what a lot of people reference when they talk about brand. It's more than a logo. It's more than product. Um, it's more than a color palette and a tagline. It is a promise to customers that is made not only through what is printed and communicated in words, but what is experienced by the customers over time. That's the promise. People learn the experience and that becomes the truth of the brand. The brand is just a, a, a very quick way through visuals and words to summarize what a a company, a thing, a promise, an experience is expected to be. And, and, and so if how I communicate the brand is different from how people experience the brand, yeah. people's experience with the brand will always win over time. There are more experiences with the brand than there are ex messaging points, you know, that I put out into the world. So first and foremost, as a framework is a foundation of clearly believing and understanding that brand is the experience with the product and the company over time, in addition to, you know, your logo and what you say and uh, what you commit to being about. On that foundation of the experience and how people would talk about what this business is and what it stands for is then being honest about that, being authentic, and then extending from that truth into areas of business where your brand has permission to travel. And that is product, product format, channels of, um, of business, who you partner with. You know, if the brand stands for something, that really does act as a filter for which partners are most intuitive to customers. So um, it, I'll give you an example. It wouldn't make sense for M&Ms to partner with Patagonia. You know, that you can put those two things together and neither, both companies are wildly successful, both brands. I'll use them brands because M&Ms is a part of a larger conglomerate. But the brands are individual things to customers. They stand for very different things. If there were to be a collaboration between M&Ms and Patagonia, that would be very odd to M&Ms fans and more odd to Patagonia fans. And, and so what a brand stands for is a filter through which customers will view the um, intuitiveness. And you want things to be intuitive. People shouldn't have to work hard to understand what a brand is doing. If they have to work hard, you're losing efficiency and value in the customer relationship. And so um, then you go, oh, okay, well, what type of food partner would make sense for Patagonia? And people could probably make a list of those things, kind of planet forward, plant based, um, outdoor drinks, right? Yep. There's, and then as you get farther away, it becomes less intuitive. And so the framework is understand what a brand is and what it isn't. It's not just your tagline. Then build a set of um, beliefs and business decisions around where that brand has the authenticity mm. to play and with whom and when and at what price 
right? If your brand is about access, it's got to have an entry price point. If your brand is about aspiration, it probably can be have products that are more expensive. So brand has everything to do with all the P's of marketing, pricing and packaging and um, product and all of that. And then finally, it's how does that brand live and evolve over time? A brand is a living, breathing thing because it is built by humans for humans and it will evolve over time. It may often start as something very narrow and often in the early days is synonymous with the first product. Hmm. Over time, as it evolves, as there are different use cases, as there are more products developed in more channels with different forms and formats, the brand then has to um, evolve and grow with it. It's why you see companies like a Domino's dropping pizza or a Dunkin' dropping the donuts and Jamba dropping the juice. <laughs> you know, it's not that we don't still sell those things. It's that it has become a bit more than its original promise to the consumer and failing to acknowledge that is limiting the, the brand's potential. And that's just using naming convention with a, a business's product evolution, but there are many, many other implications in between. I'm, I'm always curious and interested by brands that have done very well under either one historical era or one time frame, and then have an underlying kind of seismic market shift that come, right? So you, um, you know, your portfolio of brands, you know, companies like Moe's, Cinnabon, Schlossky's, et cetera, um, you know, Coca-Cola saw this, for example, with, um, you know, the, the attenuation to health, right? And, and healthy drinks against soft drinks. Um, I always find it interesting that when a brand has been so successful in an era on a certain premise of assumptions and market conditions, right, how to evolve kind of a, a full-blown ship versus starting something brand new from the scratch. I'm curious how you've thought about that, um, A, and B, I'm curious kind of in that portfolio, in your portfolio of brands, has there been a particular brand that has stuck out that's really had to go through more of an evolution than not? And maybe you can talk about that as an example. All brands have to go through an evolution or they eventually die. You know, yeah. the, two, the two building blocks of brand health are differentiation and relevance. Hmm. Okay. And everything you do for hmm. a brand follows under one of those two things. It's about making it more unique, differentiated, so it can command value and price and margin um, and it is also building a brand and, and having it be healthy today, tomorrow, 10 years from now is about preserving and growing its relevance. It matters in my life today, which is about trial, frequency, velocity, you know, all of those things, um, growing points of distribution, access. And so differentiation and relevance are the things that are true at a point in time. People grow up, new entrants to the market redefine the space, new customers come in. And so remaining differentiated and remaining relevant require change over time because the market and people change around it over time. So this is true for almost all brands. There are exceptions of brands that think of In-N-Out Burger, right? Yeah. Never changed wildly successful fans, cult following, but very slow unit growth, still family owned. Um, and so it also has a lot to do with what is scale to you. What do you need in terms of growth? If you're not venture backed and you're family owned, the world is your banana. It's a nice you know? business. Yeah. 
and, and you can lean into one of the truths of growing brand, one of them. It's not an absolute, which is scarcity can drive value. And that's what In-N-Out has used, right? They're not on every corner, like a McDonald's or a Burger King, preserving some of the specialness and not needing to innovate, change, add menu items in the way that many other far more densely penetrated retail businesses have had to because they are competing with a larger swath of the evolving marketplace and customer demographic. And so those are all choices. Your funding mechanism affects those choices. And yet there are, in most cases, you know, not the in and outs of the world, but in most cases, evolution because of the desire for growth is necessary. And of course, it's better if it happens proactively and not too late when the brand gets far behind in either differentiation or relevance. And, uh, you know, you can think of examples like a Rolls Royce at its peak was highly differentiated, but not accessible and relevant. Right? Everyone knew what it was, you know, those logos. But very quickly over time, other aspirational cars filled the hearts and minds of an emerging consumer base. And they did not evolve soon enough or big enough to maintain relevance. And so you lose your place over time. Then you're left to just continuing to charge more for what you have, which, you know, we always joke, leads you down the path of eventually selling one car for a couple million dollars a year or, you know, one $50 hamburger, right? You, there's just, you can't make up for the traffic loss and the frequency loss when you're purely differentiated and not relevant. At the same time, if you're just super relevant, but not differentiated, it's a commodity. It's a race to the bottom. It's a value play. It's about who can do it the cheapest to access mass market. And so that's the trick is, Believing those truths about brand and evolving it over time, relevance and differentiation, and constantly asking the question and being willing to acknowledge what is changing around you and what that might mean for the changes you need to put in place before the house is on fire. And that could be product evolution. It could be look and feel of the brand. You know, the product might not need to evolve greatly, but the environment in which it sits, its package Um, its box, if it's a piece of real estate, its messaging, its tone, uh, certain things that might have been funny a decade ago might not play well with a similar audience uh, today. And so that that muscle of constant reflection and evaluation and connection to the customer and how are they living their lives and where do we matter? in their lives. And what does that mean for how we need to change to remain differentiated, to have a value in our brand and how we might need to change in order to be relevant. And the perfect example is Cinnabon. When I took it over, um, we were primarily known for a giant cinnamon roll, the size of your face, really, really differentiated, right? Everybody, Cinnabon enjoys crazy high awareness, as high as Apple, Nike, through the roof, aided and unaided. Uh, in North America and the Middle East in particular. And and so differentiation wasn't a problem. Nobody makes a cinnamon roll that big that they hold hot. It's actually hard to do. Um, And so, but the relevance was waning. People going to malls less, people wanting smaller portions. So it was obvious that we needed to find more points of distribution for our brand outside of the mall 
And to optimize the sales in malls, we needed to offer smaller portions. Now there's all kinds of other things we did, but that's a very basic, simple example of a brand that was highly differentiated, but quickly losing relevance. And in order to maintain and build relevance, we needed to not only change the product format and expand and evolve it uh, to smaller portions and other things in the legacy business, we needed to launch new channels, putting versions of our product in grocery stores and versions of our product on other restaurants' menus. Pizza Hut has a Cinnabon product right now. Taco Bell has a Cinnabon product on their menu. There are many other ways to access the brand. And that conflicts with scarcity drives value. That's Mm. the other side, which is accretive ubiquity, being in many places and doing it so well, so relevantly for that channel that it actually elevates the brand. It actually helps the brand feel more contemporary and relevant because you're allowing people to experience it in very unique ways, fit for channel, fit for need state. And that's what we did with Cinnabon to turn it around. Where do you go, Kat, for your, you know, your source of learning and um, and what I'd say kind of evolution to your mindset around these types of frameworks? So I think there's a portion of it, which is certainly in industry uh, and you can sub bucket that, which is either, you know, competitors seeing what's going on as best practices in, in the industry. And then obviously your customers by right, getting a ton of insight there. But I think there's a whole world on the outside. I mean, I, I run a services business. It's a non-technology business, but I do a lot of angel investing, work with venture firms. And the way I look at it is it's truly not only personal R&D, but in many senses, it's R&D for the company also, because it's just a different way of thinking. I'm, I'm curious how you think about um, you think about kind of sources of learning to influence differentiated ways to approach you know, your business on a day-to-day basis. My main sources of learning are just having my heart and mind cracked wide open to what I'm reading and experiencing and constantly asking, what of this might be relevant to our business? And what of this then, if it's relevant, might be directly applicable? And then what of that is scalable? Those are different questions. And they, it starts with a big list and it whittles it down to just a few things over time. But the point is the top of that funnel is very wide. Um, I'm looking at, for, for the food business, I'm looking at alcohol consumption trends, flavor trends, um, health and wellness trends. And the food doesn't mean that I believe people are going to go to Cinnabon for yeah. their diet. Sure. Right? It means I need to understand what of the behaviors are relevant and out of what's relevant, what's applicable based on this brand's promise and its current relevance and differentiation. And then what of what's applicable could I implement that is scalable, that's believable to the brand that can be a positive improvement to the business. And um, that could also be non-obvious. It could be media trends and how are people creating media and consuming media? And that might not change what product we sell, but it may directly affect who we choose to partner with, how we tell our story, where we connect with people, especially now online. I mean, it's, it's just always having your business in the middle of your mind at least, so that as you interact with the world, you're just, you, I build the muscle of asking, is this relevant? If it's relevant, how is it applicable? If it's applicable, what if that is scalable? And, and then that's just the first piece. That's even having the mindset to think about innovations and changes in the world at a macro level will end up needing to show up at a very, in a micro way 
there's a whole other side of that coin, which is having the test and learn muscle in a company, having an ability to incubate and scale ideas, being able to bring people along the journey of change. Because um, if you're doing it right, you're implementing change before it's obvious that it's necessary. Otherwise, you're behind your competitors. And that's hard, especially if the business is doing well. It's actually quite easy if the business is in the tank because everybody has to acknowledge change is needed. It's very difficult to implement innovation and change and move a brand and a business forward before it's obvious that it's needed. And that speaks to culture and leadership and influence and structure and incentives and, you know, very nuanced. That's the classic innovator's dilemma concept, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very hard in a larger organization to continue to push against something that's working to invest in something that might not work, right? And, and at, at first instance, looks like a much smaller scale, but yeah. in many cases is the foundation for, for the next evolution. Um, Kat, as we, as we round out the conversation, um, you have a, a pinned tweet that, that I love, and I'm going to let you kind of talk through it. But it, it, to me, from the outside, it seems like your kind of ground truth motto that you live life by. And, and I'm not sure if that's the way you'd frame it. Um, but I'd love for you to talk about, um, you know, that pinned tweet and, um, and, and just explain, you know, what it means to you and how it drives you. Yeah, the tweet is a quote an evolved quote from my mom, uh, which is, don't forget where you came from, but don't you dare ever let it solely define you. And I further go on often to say, um, you know, the, the truth is in our roots, but our past is not our jail. Mm. And I believe that about me as a person. It really, I guess if you summarize it, it means I have permission to change. And I give that permission to others. And not just permission, but I expect it. I expect it of companies, per the conversation we just had, it is necessary for brands. And it's funny when you look at the companies that haven't evolved to maintain their competitive position, when you get under the covers, if you know the story or the backstories, there are predictably very classic behaviors of protectionism. Um, protecting the legacy business, being worried about the implications, not addressing their compensation systems to allow for openness of thought and innovation, um, not being honest about the capabilities the company does or does not have, um, not realizing the capabilities they do have that actually could grow into, um, you know, into very big businesses that later other competitors come right in and take out from underneath them when, when they had not only the capabilities, but the capital and the leadership and the customer relationships, they had everything. And then some, some woman in a garage comes up with a piece of software that comes in and takes out 20% of their business. You know, it's, it's fascinating. So this, this belief that not only do I have permission to change, do my, my brands have permission to change, but that it actually might be the obligation. The irony is that in order to honor my past and make the most of it, to honor the roots of a business, the irony is that the very thing that may honor it most is change, is innovation, is turning that existing brand IP or those customer relationships or those capabilities, starting a new S-curve and getting into something that will ride the wave with you know, future market shifts and customer life needs or competitive dynamics um, or technological advancements. And so that's, that's what that means to me. It's very personal. And um, I hope I keep growing and changing, which means whatever I'm doing today is going to be different than what I'm doing in two years. And it is an, an imperative for brands in a hyper-competitive marketplace.
Well, Cal, this has been a this has been a phenomenally interesting conversation. I so appreciate you making the time. Um, as I mentioned before, you know it's been it's been great to see your journey from from afar. Uh, so really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.